90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I am experiencing a feeling I've never experienced before. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I'm texting you right now. I didn't want you to see it before. And you can react on air, live. Live via <laughs> delayed podcast. Exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, waiting, waiting. <laughs> of course. Oh, something has come in. Okay, okay. It is a picture of a Outlook inbox, and it says, enjoy your empty inbox. <laughs> I declared email bankruptcy, and it's the scariest thing I've ever done. And don't you feel free now? Oh, my God. So I, of course, couldn't do it all the way because I'm a wiener. Um, but it is what? It's, you know, the third week of August. I saved all of, not all of, I went through and I saved 20 emails from this August and I put them in a folder that was like, deal with these. And so I've got 20 emails to deal with like by the end of the month or whatever, you know, but all the rest, right. I just, I just archived. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh my goodness. It was so scary. <laughs> so scary. And I had been methodically cleaning them out and putting them into folders. And it just, your voice kept coming back to me. And it was like, just archive them. If you're looking for something, you'll search it and it will come up. You don't have yep. to go to a folder. You'll just search it and all that stuff will come up just like it was in a folder. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So I talked to my IT friend today. And he was like, yeah, it's fine. So, so scary. And I just did it. He was like, but hold on. We're going to have to increase the archive allocation on our servers. <laughs> it was only 23,000 messages from the last two years. Come on now. Ooh. <laughs> That's nothing compared to when I was in the corporate world. That was, but yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It felt, it feels, because you saw that. I took that right before we got on our call. It feels amazing <laughs> mm -hmm. and now you just got to keep it there yeah exactly exactly so do you email zero by the end of every day or is it like every couple days or like at the end of the week you like make sure it's zero every day before you go to bed it's got to be zero no okay <laughs> otherwise it snowballs back to twenty three thousand. yeah see that's that's what i figured would actually happen so and it's like even yeah mm-hmm yeah. You don't get to go to sleep until it's zero. You don't have to respond, but you have to either say... Do something. Like, read it, and okay, well, I mean, do the David Allen thing, right? It's either archive it for reference, delete it, deal with it, or defer it. Mm. So how do you work with deferrals? Do you... Because you use Gmail, right? So do you do that thing where it sends it back to you? I used to, and it got to where I was just looping the same message back to myself <laughs> over and over because yeah. I didn't want to deal with it. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, so if it's, if it's an email, it's going to take a lot of thought or something. Then I'll start a draft, leave the draft open, and mm -hmm. archive the original message. Ah, uh, yeah. See, that's good. I've started doing that as well. 
But I will say this, a lot of emails, and I discovered this recently, that I was like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. It's going to take forever. I mean, maybe eight minutes. <laughs> 10, 15 tops. Like, if it's something big, like, you know, a request for a proposal, then obviously that's more work. But that's yeah. a whole other project at that point. Right, yeah. Like, archive the email, put do the proposal on my to-do list, and move on. Right, exactly. Um, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, every day, zero before you go to bed. This is a this is a whole new world for me. <laughs> I will say, and I don't think I don't think I talked about this on the show. I also bought a thirty minute timer, like this little fancy rose glass looking timer. So I I have the Pomodoro app and all that jazz, but something about watching the little sands tick down to try to like get stuff done with has been surprisingly helpful over the past two weeks. And it's that thing that everyone always says that's, you know, just start it. And then once you get going, you're going to want to keep working. You're not even going to want to stop at your allotted time. And it's absolutely true. So. Oh yeah. No, I've, uh, we've been under the gun on a few deadlines. And so I've been out running machines, doing, doing work in the shop where I couldn't access email where I was like, okay, you know, mm. these thousand things need to get made in the next three days. Mm-hmm. You just got to do it. And yeah, it, uh, once you get going, I, I was really sad today when I had to go back in and actually answer emails <laughs> and arrange <laughs> zoom calls. And... So, I mean, what did, did you just defer those emails during that time? So you still had a zero inbox at the end of the day? Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's very exciting. I've learned a lot of, I've always been very anti-Outlook and I've been using it online instead of the Outlook actual app or whatever. So I've gone back to the actual app because it was easier to manipulate all the, all the different messages in that format. And, uh, yeah, I've never gotten to see that little balloon, that little hot air balloon that says, enjoy your day. Like, that is going to be addicting, I think. Exactly. Ah, it's ah. very comforting when you go to sleep. And then the next morning, you know, you get up. For a while, I was a big fan of, like, I'm not going to look at my email until 10 o'clock or whatever. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work well for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's more like while I'm brushing my teeth, Oh. I go through my email and, you know, overnight, let's say between the two or three accounts I'm responsible for, let's say 28 emails came in overnight. Okay. Half of them are instant trash. The other quarter are like, do a quick look through and like, do I need to buy anything that's on the sale? Or like, does this thing need a response? Or is it just an FYI, delete or archive? And then the last 25% might need action. So by the time I walk into the office, there are four or five emails in my inbox instead of 20-something. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. Because hmm. I'm definitely... I'm, I definitely wait, but maybe... Hmm, okay. Go ahead. And I'm desperately trying... Like, I'm trying not to just respond instantly. Yes. Like, I'm trying not to be in my email all the time. Yeah. Uh, but inbox zeroing... 
I have started using that as a method to make myself have a 24-hour response period during the work week. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I will say on the weekends, I let my work email slide. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's also relatively new, but I like it. I think that having the zero inbox, or at least like attempting the zero inbox, it makes that easier to do, right? So it's like, I know that I've attended to it during the week. And therefore, I don't have to even think about it, you know, at least one day a weekend that I can just be like, you know what? I know that nothing pressing has come in that I missed because I've already addressed it. So, Because, as we've said, if it's important enough that it needs to be addressed right now, that's not an email thing. Yeah, mm, no, that's absolutely right. And if anyone has anything like that for me, I deleted all your emails today, suckers. Sorry. <laughs> hmm. Uh, oh yeah um oh, it, it is it's a whole new world we we obviously need to revisit everyday carry every day <laughs> you know that kind of stuff that we used to talk about a lot yeah yeah because i feel like i'm honing in very tightly on the thing that works for me and it kind of i don't know if it sucks that it took me this long to do it or if it just it's just something you have to live through. Like you just have to live through trying all these different things to figure out what works for you. I think so. I mean, we're, we were talking today. We're trying to refine some of our processes at the shop. Like, hey, in the last year, this process got a lot better and it's made our lives much easier. This process, we've tried three or four things and it still sucks because we still ran out of water or whatever. Mm-hmm. Before we had... The opportunity to go get more like how can we make this not happen yeah Mm -hmm. and yeah you just gotta you just gotta play with it Mm -hmm. we've tried so many different things i've tried many different things for personal productivity yeah we've tried so many things at work and eventually you find a system that works but part of it is you have to realize no system is perfect you just have to commit to one and when you commit to it it's like an a creed right and it becomes What's so interesting, which is what my IT friend and I were talking about today for quite a long time, was like, you can look at everyone's productivity stuff. You can read these books, but it's like, you can make that work for you. And that's the thing that you should do. The thing that you're going to stick to is the thing that you should do. It doesn't have to be the prescription exactly. But if you modify it, figure out what you like, because I have a very modified bullet journal slash smart goal thing going on and it's like I think I can stick to it so that's what I should use and so it was it was interesting to talk to him about that and like I said early on when I got my grown-up job I interviewed a whole bunch of people um to see what their like time management and productivity strategies were and that was an enlightening experience (laughs) right and you know it took me what this is eight years later trying their things and be like, Ooh, this is not okay. Or this really works for me. I'm going to pick this morsel of what this person does and, you know, adapt it for my uses. So it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There are some aspects of getting things done that I do not subscribe to because I tried them. It doesn't work for my business, my workflow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like, you know, David Allen says you should have an inbox, you know, at home an inbox at work Everything that comes to you goes into that inbox and gets processed at the end of the day or the end of the week. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, in his book, he says, like, my wife has an inbox. I have an inbox. We put things in each other's inboxes. Like, that doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work for my wife. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, that's, the, that's the other thing is you can't make people yes, exactly. conform to your system. <laughs> you have to make it work for you. It's not for everybody. Uh, yeah, not even a little bit. That is exactly right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, because like uh, I've had some people say, you know, I send them an email. And they're like, oh, well, can you reformat this and send it this way because it works with my system? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, my general response is, no, you can put it in your own system. Uh, that's my response when I get someone that writes me back and says, can you turn this into a meeting invite? No, no, I'm not your secretary. And I don't use Outlook meetings. I use my Gmail, so I won't do that. And in the amount of time it took you to send this email, you could have done it yourself. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep. Exactly. So now, even though that is a very helpful thing to do, I refuse to do it on principle. (laughs) Yep. Mm -hmm. But believe it or not... uh, (laughs) None of this is what we we're going to talk about, and we haven't even got to the fact that our uh, our chiller plant for our laser caught on fire this week. <gasps> oh, what? Oh my gosh! <clears throat> okay, do tell. Yeah. Well, no, I, I go out there and I turn the laser on, turn the chiller plant on, and I go in the office to send the file to the laser that I want to cut. It's a control panel for a box we were making. And we hear a, an alarm, machine alarm going off. And I thought it was on another machine that one of my guys was running. And I said, hey, man, I think your alarm's going off. And he goes out there and we just hear smoke, smoke, smoke. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, my uh, gosh. Yeah, the, we had to put gloves on to carry it out. It was hot to the touch. Oh. Uh, the, the insides were burning. Okay, it's a good thing everyone is uh, trained in all sorts of um, fire, fire things at your shop. So, <laughs> well, yeah, it's one of those things. Like this is not the first time that a piece of equipment has caught on fire, and it won't be the last. You know, yeah. we deal with relatively high power, high energy systems, and yeah, no, I was very impressed. As you know, one person walked out and said, "Smoke, smoke, smoke." The other two of us went out, looked at it said yep it's yep. on fire <laughs> and we got uh got some gloves got some cutters just cut all the cables and lines going to the box and uh chucked it outside to burn man and that was that like it was a very very calm response everybody did a great job and a new one will be here friday oh that's crazy did it damage anything else or just itself just itself that's... and it might be we might be able to repair it as a backup but that's priority number 8256 yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> wow boy nothing that exciting has happened to me i'm currently down again in the lab cuz helium is very very scarce so waiting on that and then i'm sure i'll have lots more laboratory complaints but until then it's uh, just yes. microscope work <laughs> We need to do a live podcast of you <laughs> filling the magnetometer. Oh, my gosh. It's just going to be me screaming the whole time. <laughs> yep. Oh, it's so scary. It's like those seconds of of manicness 
punctuated by minutes of just sitting there and listening. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, can't wait. That'll be a great time. <laughs> and we'll, we'll have to digitize the VHS tape of how to do it. <laughs> it has been. It's been re-recorded. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Well, yep. We need the original. Yeah. Oh, I know. I'm going to have to find it. I'm sure I have it. Sure I have it. <laughs> what I don't have is the TV strapped to the cart with the VCR strapped to it. I don't have that, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, the old school. <laughs> oh, yeah. Movie day in elementary. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Uh, we've talked about those carts numerous times this week. I find that very interesting. They got brought up again. <laughs> <laughs> it's my kids first day in elementary school and they watch shows online like and i'm like what are you guys doing watching tv online i'm like oh i guess we watch tv too it was just more of an ordeal <laughs> right <laughs> so never mind <laughs> yeah um none of this is what we we're talking about what are we going to talk about today <laughs> we're going to talk about weather oh well that's no surprise <laughs> And I have a specific topic, <laughs> which is the fact that winds very far above the ground are parallel to the isobars, and close to the ground, they are not, and close to the ground, they are weaker, and why that is. I mean, isn't the answer to this just friction? Partially, yeah. <laughs> Earth spinning's part of it. I'm sure the sun, we can work that in. Oh, yeah, Exactly. Mm-hmm. Volcanoes might be a little more of a stretch, but I bet we could do it. Yeah, gravity too, but yeah. I mean, not really. Gravity would gravity's easy to work in in this one a little bit. Abstractly. Yeah. <laughs> a- abstractly. <laughs> There's a G in some of the equations. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm looking at. So originally I was pretty upset with you because, you know, Sometimes we plan stuff out ahead of time, and sometimes we don't. And I thought, I didn't bring any of my meteorology textbooks home. And he told me we were going to talk about all this meteorology stuff. Sometimes I text you two hours before we record and say, be ready to talk about the pressure gradient force. (laughs) And I say, oh, man, are you going to put up notes? And you say, nope. And I'll say, okay. (laughs) So your notes are your degree. It's on the wall. Exactly. No, it's not. It's It's in the same folder it came in in the mail. (laughs) <laughs> in my closet. <laughs> oh, yeah. <clears throat> but it's there, so I guess that matters. <laughs> um, yeah, and... Yeah. So, the, actually, the reason I want to talk about this, I think, is almost as interesting as talking about it. <laughs> yes, correct. We were going to talk about it for an hour before I thought maybe we should talk about this on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, so it wasn't I, just because you wanted to study meteorology again, just to brush up. You actually had to, right? Yeah. So I just finished taking the written portion of my instrument pilot examination. That's exciting. And so now I only have an oral exam and a flight portion left. Man, another oral <laughs> exam. Are you going to start to have flashbacks to your qualifying exam? <laughs> Yeah, I think the the oral exam for my private pilot was between two and three hours, and they said to expect three or four for this one. (gasps) Well, gosh, my oral exam certainly wasn't three hours long. (laughs) It's like taking a a set of quals every time. Yeah, like a couple of sets. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, that's terrible. But I guess, you know, something as important as flying an airplane 
it should probably yeah. require <laughs> some level of <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so while I was preparing for the exam, I used this application called Shepherd Air. Okay. And they have all of the known FAA questions in a database. Mm. And first of all, we could spend we could spend a whole podcast talking about their study strategy. That is very but interesting. To to sum it up, their study strategy is you go through all of the questions, excuse me, all the questions once with just the question and the correct answer displayed. Okay. Then you go through all of the questions with all of the choices displayed. All right. And then you go through the questions again and you mark the ones that you made. I mean, there's a few more steps in here that I'm going to skip over. Yeah. But basically you've gone through this whole database of questions like four or five times. Okay. Mm-hmm. The database was over a thousand questions. Oh, easy. <laughs> yep. And one of the really important parts of the instrument flying test, because you're flying on instruments because you're in weather. Yeah. Generally, uh, is meteorology. And a full 20-something percent of the known test questions are on meteorology. I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> and the whole book, there's a FAA publication on meteorology for pilots. And, I mean, not to be too harsh on our meteorology textbooks, but really they should teach intro to meteorology out of this thing. <laughs> So this is interesting to me because, you know, you know, everyone knows. I used to work at the Severe Storms Laboratory, and I was offered to stay on for my master's, and the FAA was going to essentially pay for my master's. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a few bizarro things that we do because we're in the U.S. and because we're dealing with airplanes, which are basically ships, but in the sky. <laughs> Air access of so fluid. We- yeah, so we, we inherit all of this nautical terminology, which right. can get kind of annoying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, true. You know, like we work in nautical miles and knots. Mm-hmm. Port, starboard. Um, yeah, uh, so <laughs> and we have this, you know, similar color coding signals on the planes as ships do. And, right. Uh, but anyway, so you have to know a surprising amount of media, even for a basic private pilot's license. But in this exam while going through it like you had to be relatively familiar with pressure gradient force coriolis force you had to know dry and wet lapse rates the standard atmosphere you had to be able to describe uh, surface friction you had to be able to calculate predicted temperatures at altitudes based on parcel paths this is all super interesting stuff and i think like one thing that we didn't talk about, and I knew because of my work at the Severe Storms Lab, was that, you know, you produce all these diagrams every day. We have a whole, you know, we have a whole um, podcast about the SKU-T log P. But it's like much of these data that are produced are being consumed by pilots. Like those are the people that are looking at this, not just other meteorology students. <laughs> Right, because we really care about it. Mm-hmm. 
And we don't care about, like, does the forecast say it's going to rain or right. not? Right. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> we don't care. We want to know, like, what what altitude is the freezing level at? How confident are you in that? Mm-hmm. And um, stuff you were talking about is before. Is it going to fog? Or? Yeah, exactly. That was the cool part that I was thinking about is, like, the temperature inversions and everything. Because when we talk about paleoclimate, we talk about, like, one thing you don't talk about in terms of climate is clouds. But the effects of clouds are such a big deal on the weather and they kind of get ignored in climate because we don't even know how to process all that data. But that's something that pilots absolutely need to know about, whether there are clouds, where they'd form. Didn't you say there was like five types of fog or something, which is absolutely going to be a show topic? <laughs> yeah. So the five methods that you can, five common methods to form fog, like you have to know those and be able to describe them. Uh, sea breeze, um, there were all kinds of questions about, and these are the things that I did not get from a meteorology degree. Like one of the questions was like, Hey, here's a, here's an observation at an airport, uh, temperatures, this dew points, this, the winds, this, uh, you call and get a weather briefing and they tell you that a warm front, a, a fast moving warm front is approaching. Describe the sequence of weather that's going to happen over the airport. Oh man, that's so cool. And there would be questions like, well, is it going to rain? You know, yes or no. Okay, well, yeah, there's a warm front coming through. Like, okay, well, is it going to be showery precipitation or constant? <sighs> Do you expect the clouds to be stratiform or will there be vertical development? That's... Like, all of these are questions <laughs> that you, at least I did not get from a meteorology <laughs> education. <laughs> uh, well, that makes me really happy because I have a lab in my native science class that talks about time one through five of a of a frontal passage but um yeah like why is that not why is that not on every like synoptic test that we had you know like that well and down to the level so let's see i'm trying to think of some of the some of the questions there were questions about um where you would find super cool liquid water um which is interesting and very relevant for structural icing on airplanes mm-hmm um, let's see, there was, you know, warm fronts. Oh, there was one, this one really blew my mind. It said, which of these is most likely to form frontal waves, which is something you don't even talk about until like senior year. Yeah. And it's like, you know, a slow moving cold front, a fast moving cold front, a stationary front. Like it has all these oh. frontal combinations listed. It's like, which one of these is going to produce frontal waves? That's cool. Hmm. Um, you know, asking about standing, uh, lenticular clouds, man, uh, if you see clear skies or if you see cumulus with vertical development, like what are the conditions going to be like under and above that layer? Um, I'm really glad you did this. Cause I feel like we certainly are never going to have one of those, man, what are we going to talk about this week? Things again. <laughs> So there's a, yeah. there's at least that, but also interesting that we've talked about a lot of these. That's, I like the, here's your set of, seems like such good pedagogy too. Like, here's your set of observations. You know, what's your analysis? As opposed to what it feels like we always do, which is like, this huge storm came by, let's work it out backwards. Like, why not do some actual prediction, not like model prediction, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you have to know about the standard atmosphere. Um, 
But a whole set of questions in the practice questions, and actually one that I had on my test, was why at 2,000 feet do the winds parallel isobars and are stronger than at the surface where they cross isobars and are weaker? Isobars being lines of constant pressure. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you look at a upper level map in quotes, like let's say a 500 millibar chart. Okay. You see these swoopy lines that are troughs and ridges of pressure moving across the country. And you see wind barbs and the wind barbs are always, always parallel. Right. Which goes contrary to everything that you're told about fluids moving from high pressure to low pressure. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why is it so? I mean, my first guess is friction, right? But we're talking about, oh, I can't wait to say that geostrophic winds, right? So we have to talk about what that means because that's, yeah, yeah, that's different everywhere. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So let's just talk about the upper level so we can forget friction in the surface for now. Okay, great. Why do the winds not blow from high to low pressure? So you have to have something, because they would want to. So you have to have right. something balancing that. And so... And that, that's called the pressure gradient force, right? The, the right. force that makes the winds want to go from high to low. Right, PGF. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you've got a wind blowing and the PGF wants to happen, if you're just doing that simple vector addition, you have to have something that makes that not happen. And so if you think about planets with atmospheres they're rotating so it's got to have something to do with that right yeah it sounds like that coriolis thing there we go not affecting your toilet doesn't do that not affecting your toilet yeah so the coriolis like so if this has to do with rotation um this my student would 100 not mind me telling this story and i love it so much we're talking about this in our climate class what the coriolis force is and i said we can do the math if you want which I didn't want to, uh, but you know, something has to be in motion for a while to be affected by the rotation of the earth, right? We're only rotating, you know, takes us 24 hours to go around. Right. So I said, your toilets aren't affected by this. Okay. Everybody writes stuff down. We move on four slides later. This dude in the back is like, whoa, 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 wait, I just absorbed that. That's not, a, that's not true. He said, I used to teach high school. I told students about this all the time. And he wanted to go back and, like, personally apologize to all his students that the Coriolis force does not affect how their toilets spin. But it does affect upper-level winds, right? So there's a, there's a MetPy Monday from a while back now where I actually used MetPy's calculation functions to prove that it doesn't cause toilets. Oh, to spin. man, I'm going to use that in class now. <laughs> it was so funny. He was so upset. He talked about it for like the rest of the semester. And I was like, you know what? This is why we teach. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so that's what's balancing it, right? That's why it doesn't directly go from high to low. It's balanced by the Coriolis force. And in fact, they perfectly balance in what's called the geostrophic balance. Uh, sounds so scary. Like, there's a lot of equations going into this, is what it sounds like. <laughs> and there's really not. No. Uh-uh. And, it, and it makes perfect sense, really. 
so the Coriolis Force is a whole other show. Yes. <laughs> but the summary of the Coriolis Force, what is it? Um, because you're rotating, you deflect a certain direction, right, in our case, um, anything that's moving in a straight path. Yeah, from our reference frame on the rotating body. Yes, correct. Yes. Because if you're in space, it makes a straight line. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is why, you know, looking at 2D globes and flight paths can get really confusing if you don't think about this. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, let's imagine that the Don't Panic Geocast headquarters uh, decides that we want to uh, fire a missile at our North Pole competitors. <laughs> Those dang Arctic scientists. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so if somebody on the space station, well, somebody way further out, actually, somebody on a geostationary satellite. Yeah, there you go. Is watching this. They see our missile travel in a straight line. Mm-hmm. But on the Earth, our missile appears to curve to the right in the northern hemisphere because the Earth is rotating underneath the missile flight. Yep. Exactly. So we have to aim somewhere different. Which is why the Coriolis force, and this is what really screws people up and really got me for a while. It's not a real force. Oh, I knew we were going to start talking about this. I thought we were going to wait till next week. This imaginary force business is so weird. <laughs> so, yeah, well, we won't get deep into it, but it's, it's called an apparent force Ugh. because it's a force that we see in our reference frame. But from outside our reference frame, it's not there. It's, it's not, not a physical force. actually happening so crazy. <laughs> but we have to do it to make things work because we're not stationary even though we think we are. Exactly. Oh, that's why it perfectly balances the PGF. Yeah. That's so strange. So strange Spooky. to me. Spooky. <laughs> it is. Spooky. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I will start bringing in all those inertial force things and centripetal and centrifugal and all that next week, I imagine. So I'll be well prepared with more than one beer. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. The number of times that I have wanted to physically assault somebody when they said centrifugal force causes this. I know. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know it offended me until meteorology class. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And then somebody might have just as well said, well, you're mama. <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. It becomes very personal after you live through dynamics one, two, and three. Oh, Evgeny Fedorovich, God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sure does become personal. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, next week, that's going to be rough. <laughs> But so you get these two forces that are balancing and the pressure gradient force is proportional to, well, the pressure gradient, mm-hmm. how high the high is, how low the low is. Makes sense. Okay. Now the Coriolis force is a function of your latitude on the planet. Because mm-hmm. we're spinning faster at the equator, not so fast at the pole, unless we're talking about angular velocity, but let's not go there. Oh, let's not go there, and let's not bring in the weird shape of the Earth either. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's where, gra- that's where gravity fits in <laughs> to this whole conversation. <laughs> so it's a function of that. It's also how fast our thing is moving. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
So we're talking about a parcel of air. The stronger the difference between the high and the low, the more it's going to try to flow from high to low, which means it's going to flow faster, which means the Coriolis force is going to be larger, which means it yep. keeps that perfect balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. It all just works. Ugh. Math. <laughs> Math. So... I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I remember one of our dynamics tests, we had to calculate the Coriolis deflection of Guy Fury coughing up a chicken bone. <laughs> that's amazing. That sounds like a Kevin Kleisel question, even though he didn't teach uh, dynamics, but... <laughs> no, that, that is that is an Alan Shapiro question. Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... Anyway, yeah, so you get these two things that are perfectly balanced, but as you get close to the surface, weird stuff starts happening, and 99% of the time in meteorology, we go, that's called the boundary layer, and it's weird, (laughs) and we move on. Even though it has so much to do with weather. (laughs) Even though it's where we live. Exactly. (laughs) Most of the time we go, the math gets hard when we get to the surface, so let's just talk about, like, you know, 5,000 feet up. Uh, so I love talking about, like, GCMs, right? Because you say, what's the hardest part in these models? And the hardest part is coupling the ground and the atmosphere. Like, that's super hard to do. So we just don't do it. And then I keep talking, and you can see, like, well, isn't that what we're interested in? <laughs> like, how can you even model anything if you don't do that? Yeah. It's rough. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, though, to, I guess one way you can kind of visualize what all everything that's happening here is imagine you've got, you know, a mountain and a valley and water's flowing from the high point to the low point, high pressure to low pressure. Mm-hmm. And then you spin the mountain. <laughs> and you look at it from outside the spinning mountain and from on the spinning mountain. Yep. So it's going to look different. Your water is going to flow, yeah, not straight down yeah. if you're sitting there pouring it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we've got that covered, I think, at least as much as we will this week. But once you get to the surface, we get all these pesky things, tree, ground, grass, houses, you, me, yep. that impede the flow of wind. Mm-hmm. And since wind is this kind of viscousy fluid of air... We don't only get that slowdown right at the surface. It actually goes up into the atmosphere. A couple thousand feet, we can observe this slowdown. Yeah. This is where people talk about geology being this, like, 3D science. But it's like meteorology is as well. You know, you get really used to looking at these flat 2D charts. But it's not in 2D. It's in... They're, They're topo maps of air. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what they are. It's not only the same physics, it's the same mapping. (laughs) And even more so than that, it's the thing that's on top of all your geology. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah, so anyway, um, yeah, when you're making your cross-section, it's not really complete unless you look at the planetary boundary layer that day, but... (laughs) <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna bring that up. I mean, I do bring that up. That's my whole point in yeah teaching this climate classes to make that coupling apparent. <laughs> but yeah, so you get close to the surface, you start slowing the wind down with friction, and when it slows down, the Coriolis 
forces decreased. Mm -hmm. So now our geostrophic balance is thrown out of whack, and the wind starts flowing towards low pressure at an angle across the isobars. Oh, oh, no. Yep. So you talk about this, yeah, when you get cross-meridional flow due to all this, and then we start getting fun stuff like weather. (laughs) Right? You should go back and listen to our... I think the isobaric and isoclinic, baroclinic. There we go. That was the word I was looking for. <laughs> baroclinic, barotropic. Barotropic and baroclinic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is all, it's so interesting how this many years later, looking back at it again, you're like, oh, that's what that meant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I get it now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I don't know. To me, one, going through all these questions, I think most pilots should probably just get a meteorology degree, like meteorologists get a math major, basically. Right, which just happened at OU is that the aviation school just went into the College of Atmospheric and Geographic Sciences, and a lot of people are like, this makes no sense. And because I had to work so closely with the FAA all through my undergrad, it's like, actually, it makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Now, granted, every time... I read an FAA text that talks about lapse rates in terms of degrees Celsius per <laughs> kilofoot. I want to throw something. You can't do that. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, man. America, right? <laughs> like... <laughs> yep. It's like we're almost there. We're, we're using real temperature units, but, but we per thousand feet. We can't do distances i'm sorry it's not gonna happen quit trying to make kilometers happen (laughs) right um or you know our pressure settings for altimeters and inches of mercury how is that a thing that's disgusting to me so actually some of the questions on the exam are something like you know you set your altimeter to 30.26 inches of mercury oh But then at your destination, you don't set it to the correct setting, which is 29.37 inches of mercury. How far off is your altimeter? Oh, man. So you have to know how many feet per inch of mercury. (laughs) Which turns out it's about a thousand. Uh, (laughs) I love when the math works like that. But still. (laughs) But... Yeah, so there's all these questions, and then actually doing things like, and likewise, meteorologists should should go fly some, uh, because you don't really understand how sharp that temperature. You look at it on a sounding, and you're like, "Wow, that's that's a big temperature inversion." And then you go fly through it, and you watch the outside air temperature needle jump 15 degrees and 300 feet. <laughs> See, now that's the vertical equivalent of driving through a dry line. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. You can see it in the X direction, and you can see it in the Z direction. <laughs> and, yeah, there's just all these intuitions that you can pick up that I certainly didn't appreciate until now. Uh, but just going through, you know, my test preparation, everybody goes on about how this is one of the hardest uh, written tests in the FAA world. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, if I hadn't, had a meteorology degree that 
chunk of material would have taken me a long time to get through. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, it took us a long time to get through in college. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, now you're going to have to turn around and teach someone who hasn't had to sit through all of Evgeny Fedorovich's lectures <laughs> how to yeah, do I mean, it. Talk, talking about lapse rates and whether the atmosphere is stable or unstable, mm-hmm. that's a late thermodynamics concept. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and then we reevaluate it over and over again in three subsequent classes. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this test, they'll show you. Yeah. They'll show you a METAR and an upper level temperature forecast and go, is this atmosphere stable or not? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that's great. And you're like, what? No, I need four pages to work this out. (laughs) Starting with. F equals MA. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no, it was very fascinating. I thought I was going to hone in on that one particular set of questions because I don't know it's something that a lot of people think about, but it's actually really cool that this apparent force just happens to perfectly balance PGF because it has to because it's apparent. It ha- exactly. <laughs> I feel like this is, yeah. This is a fight you would have with a petulant student, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I'm talking about you, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I was never a difficult student. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> I accepted all explanations verbatim. <laughs> Till now. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, this is a really, it is really interesting. And it's interesting when you start to apply this to different planets and all that but i mean also the whole point if everything was geostrophic it'd be really boring around here yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i mean this this cross isobar flow is what makes things interesting at the surface Mm -hmm. exactly so yeah and i mean we could always oh man this would be so much fun it's you know Picking a day and going through surface to 200 millibar charts and looking at like the tilted structure of a low pressure system <laughs> and why that is. Oh man, I don't, I mean, I'm sure nerdier things have been spoken, but I really appreciate you saying, man, this would be really fun. <laughs> um, but it's absolutely true. And you know what most meteorologists do for fun, or at least this is what we all did for fun especially at the lab, on interesting days, we would get out our 11 by 17 OBS map, which was just blank because we use computers, and we would all make our hand-drawn isobar maps, right? Like, so you'd pick your level, and, you know, we're, say, 150 millibar level, and you would hand contour it, and that was always the, the most fun. And see, that's where I'm like, you know we have computers now, right? No, no. Getting out your colored pencils and doing it, John, is worth, it slows your mind down and you can think about the 3D nature of what you're actually drawing. Now, I do think, yes, that slowing down, getting familiar with the data are important. Uh, But I'm not a good hand contour. I never have been. (laughs) You can't be worse than me, but it was still fun. (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's good times. I think you're exactly right. Like it's so 
And that's the point where I think we lose a lot of people in science, just to go back to this, is that it is really hard to take these 2D data and represent them in your mind in 3D. It's hard to make that jump because everything you look at is presented 2D mostly. Not so much anymore. Well, we have more capability now to not do that, but it's hard to figure out like what that 850 millibar map, what that really means, you know? Right. Well, and I mean, this is, this is going to be a side rant, but this whole thing's been a side rant. <laughs> um, it always really frustrates me when somebody, and this could be in aviation, it could be in meteorology, could be anywhere, is looking at a map and some meteorologist will undoubtedly go, you know, those isobars should be kinked around the trough axis <laughs> because of this thing called the Margulies. From have you ever heard of it? The rule of V's, man. <laughs> okay, is it true? Yep, absolutely. Does it operationally matter one iota for what I'm trying to do right now, which is figure out what kind of weather I'm going to encounter flying from Oklahoma to Tennessee? <laughs> nope. <laughs> yep like if you're gonna pick a hill to die on that's not a very good one yeah. considering how many current public misconceptions there are about everything <laughs> no kidding <laughs> that is exactly right <clears throat> yep but undoubtedly there are a lot of deaths on that hill i will agree <laughs> oh yes and then i just walk on and be like you know what i'm good <laughs> well and this is the difference between operation so i you know, I've said before, I wasn't a good forecaster. I don't care about forecasting. It, it wasn't my thing. Mm -hmm. It's some people's lives. That's great. It's just not mine. Right. Like, that's just not what I care about in meteorology. Mm -hmm. um, but really, at the end of the day, especially in pilot land, like, I just care about what is the best information that I can get in a quick, condensed, and accurate manner that's going to tell me what I might be able to expect. So, meteorologist, a quick way to make everybody not like you and fund you <laughs> is to start arguing with somebody over kinking of isobars around a trough axis <laughs> versus just trying to tell them relevant information to them. We see this all the time, <laughs> in my mind, in weather forecasts, like even local news forecasts, where somebody will try to go deep into the meteorology display. It's like nobody that's watching this local news forecast or national news forecast, they want to know if they need to take an umbrella on their way out the door. <laughs> like your, your job is to, you know, all those things and you condense all of that knowledge into the useful nugget that somebody needs to walk away with. Mm -hmm. That's why you get a paycheck. Yeah. If it's just churning out numerical answers, you are no longer needed for that. I, that's exactly right. Yep. That is exactly right. We can do that all day long with a touch of a button. Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so in my mind, where the meteorologist comes in is taking all of that education, looking at the numerical outputs, and saying, you know, based on my experience or based on my knowledge or based on knowledge of this area, here's what all of this complicated math means for you today. It means you're going to need to take an umbrella and it's going to turn into freezing rain later. 
don't so you know. need to leave work early. Man, can we record that for a lot of the meteorologists? Because I'll tell you what, if I see another forecast discussion that is only the names of model output, I'm going to throw my computer out the window. Right. <clears throat> but I digress. <laughs> but we digress. <laughs> I mean, what's better than seeing just someone rely completely on models is maybe relying on nothing at all. You know, the null state. When that takes us to everybody's favorite segment of the show, <laughs> Fun Paper Friday, yeah. and a hill that I will probably die on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, when you start counting, you start with zero. <laughs> I knew <laughs> that's what you would take from this. I knew you would be excited about this one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just because of that. And I was like, oh, no. I was thought that you would not even get past the first. The The introduction in this paper was enlightening, and I loved it, um, <laughs> as is the popular science rundown of it. And so this is from last year um, in a... I think that Google has my number in terms of, oh, you're looking up weird science? Well, I know you like animals. I know you like medicine. And so this is from the Journal of Neuroscience again. <laughs> right. And it is the behavioral and neuronal representation of numerosity zero in the crow by Kirchhoff et al. <laughs> All right. So zero, there's a whole book on it, which I highly encourage you to go get and read. It's not very thick. I knew it. All about the number zero. <laughs> when the concept of zero came about. Uh, computer scientists love to tell you that you should start counting at zero. <laughs> Episode zero. If you, if Hello, you, world. If you <laughs> if you tell a computer scientist, you know, that you're going to list off ten things, they'll start the list with zero and it'll go zero through nine because that's ten items. <laughs> but apparently that null state was very revolutionary in mathematics, but is also a weird thing to do, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I figured. Well, I mean, think about it. When a young kid, like very young children, don't have a good concept of nothing. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> uh huh. Because if you don't have anything to count, what are you even. Okay. So there's no counting going on. Not that there exists this null state as well as the state of numerosity of other integers. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And so apparently, so far that we know, not many animals understand the null state, but crows do, and us if and If you watch my dog licking an empty food bowl, <laughs> there's <laughs> great evidence to support that. <laughs> oh, man, that's so true. Um, this... This actual experiment was very interesting, I thought. Um, they have these two crows that are clearly trained academic crows. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I love. <laughs> um, loving crows anyway. And so what they did was they had this screen that would come up with different numbers of circles on it or zero circles on it. 
And so the point was they would show, they had these two crows, and they did like 80 trials, so a whole bunch. And they would show this green screen, so a circle that's just green for a time period, 500 milliseconds. Then they would show the sample, so either it was a gray circle with no other circles within it or up to five other circles within it, I think. Um, maybe it was just four. And then they would show the green screen again. So the crow had to memorize what was on the gray screen. And then they would show either a matching or a non-matching screen to that first gray screen. If it matched, the crow had to do a thing. And if the crow, if it didn't match, the crow had to do a different thing. And which was all about the crow moving its head or pecking the screen. And it said they practiced for a long time, obviously giving the crows food as a reward. And the crows did really well at matching the different number of dots, which were in different locations. So they were actually counting. Okay, so they could do this, and they could tell that they were counting them because they had these electrodes wired up in their brain. But it was really cool, so they could tell this numerosity of one circle versus four circles, but also when there were no circles. So... Ah, crows understand zero. And they also tried different background shapes to make sure it wasn't just the circle. Uh, they had squares as well. And so, yes, it was just up to four circles, but it was five trials. Mm. Zero, one, two, three, four. <gasps> so there were five things. <laughs> I thought this was really cool. Um, they talked about, I don't know if you like made it into this deep dive of this part, about how numerosity is expressed in the brain. And it was very interesting because they talked about it being like a bell curve. So the crows did really well. It's at over 80% correct rate. But where they messed up was between numbers that were close. So if there were two dots was the correct answer, they would mess up more often by saying it was three dots versus having one dot versus four dots, you know? So as those got farther apart, it was easier for them to tell apart, which was like exactly the same as happens when you did this trial with monkeys or with humans. Yeah, and what really amazed me is if you look at figure 2A and B for the two different crows, who I was very disappointed did not have names. They were just crow one and crow two. Surely they had names, but my thought was maybe they were, you couldn't even print the names because they were something real dumb, so... Right. But these two crows, like their response frequency graphs are almost carbon copies. Yeah. One of them was a little dumber than the other one. <laughs> not, a, a little. Not much, though. <laughs> yeah, this is really impressive. Um, this was super cool. And the whole thing that I thought throughout was like, I want to see this with, I need a larger crow population for this to happen with. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I loved that in one of the figures, they just show the symbol for an op amp and a little electrode stuck into a brain. Yeah. <laughs> it's how they amplified this neural signal. <laughs> yeah, that part was really, they put those glass-coated wires in their brains to tell where it was lining up. So I thought that figure was really interesting, the way they show all that, show all the data in this one graph is, um, yeah, the the figures I thought were very good in this paper i i concur mm -hmm. the figures are 
they don't somebody read the tufty book <laughs> uh, because there's a very clear lack of chart junk yeah mm-hmm. on these the colors are very distinct this would print relatively well in black and white yep um there are spark lines even in a few like yes this is a very well graphically presented paper mm-hmm. so i thought even if you didn't make it to being super interested about this, which I knew you would be anyway, because of the zero business. <laughs> like you have to really appreciate this data presentation is very good. Um, and showing these, like they don't call them this, but they're basically confusion matrices mm-hmm. uh, of the predicted versus the true case, and you know what are the off diagonal elements versus how diagonal is this matrix, and so on. Yeah. For, the prediction versus actual data is a great way to show it and a very mathematically more rigorous way to show it, but presented not in the way of, well, we know all these mathematical terms, so we're going to call it that. So yeah. you don't think you understand the chart. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. This is, oh, yeah, it's really good. I feel like there should be a seminar just on data presentation. I would 100% pull this paper and that crazy dog breed paper to talk about. <laughs> These are some... And sharing... Like, this one drives me nuts when people do this. You have two or three charts stacked on top of each other. And they all have the same x-axis. Say it's time. You don't need to draw it on every one and label it on every one. <laughs> Just stack the y-axis. Just Put one x-axis along the bottom. Mm-hmm. And they do that here with fantastic success Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it looks really great good colors too like the color scheme just like you said would print well black and white looks really yes so kirshak et al uh tip of the hat on putting a lot of thought into how you presented this (laughs) that's what i it was what i told john before i was like look at net figure three if you don't look at anything else look at figure three in this paper it's spectacular Um, so this is really neat. And, you know, they say, hey, we don't know what this means, but it would be really interesting to look at what this means in terms of, you know, can reptiles do this? Because birds came from reptile or birds came from dinosaurs, but reptiles are different where they split off. And, you know, what it, it's clear why animals would want to know the difference between one and four. But what does knowing a null value like what does it give the animals? Like, what advantage, what behavioral advantage is that? And right. so that's sort of, like, the the frontier of where we're at with this. Like, okay, so they do understand zero. Why? Yeah, because evolutionarily, there's no reason to do something unless it helps you live or reproduce. Right, exactly. So I thought this was really interesting. I love crows. This was super cool. <laughs> yes, so... <laughs> If you've got data on the perception of zero and null values in your animals, <laughs> children, or yourself, we'd love to see that data. Shannon, how can they get a hold of it? Send us that data, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. You can post it in our Slack channel where we hang out sometimes, the Don't Panic channel on the Software Underground. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to keep us going, you can do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science.
any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.